0: The question I have for you today, Rodney, is have you heard of the Peruvian anchoveta? I've not. So, it is the primary source... Of omega-3 supplements and in fact one-eighth of all fish we catch a year globally are Peruvian anchovettas and only 4% of them are used for human consumption. They're all used for concentration of omega-3 supplements and what's interesting even more so is that there was an evolutionary study recently done on omega-3 and one it's better to get them naturally through fish and food and other digestive processes but in that evolutionary study they They studied a group that was on the coast and a group that was inland that got less omega 3s, and neither were worse off than the other from a brain health perspective or intelligence, which puts into question the actual impact of omega-3s from a as a concentrated form unless you're doing it just to supplement a missing ingredient that you absolutely need because you're deficient in something
1: kind of like vitamin d so what is a peruvian anch- it's, anch- a,
0: anch- it's like a, it's like an anch- it's like an anchovy
1: oh it's a fish
0: yeah it's a fish from peru from peru on the coasts of peru and we catch hmm. a lot of them and they're used for very few things other than omega-3 so we
1: put them in at omega-3 supplements. so is it fish like they use it fish oil supplements is yeah. that what they yeah, normally they, are they
0: they grind it up and they they concentrate the oil hmm. yeah peruvian anchoveta anchoveta mm-hmm. which is probably spanish for anchov. <laughs> Welcome to, or welcome back to, more in common. Uh, we are a social enterprise, you know, with the goal of exposing the root system. The thing is, we believe that we have more in common, and that we are all nurtured by the same things, and we're dependent upon each other.
1: And this is our podcast, our social experiment, where we look to provide a comfortable, safe space to have open, honest, and insightful conversations that are important. We've made a map for you to talk to anyone about anything at almost any time. And really our goal is to supplement this map by giving you the tools that you need to master conversation and improve your conversation skills so that you can become a catalyst for conversation and become a conversation master.
0: So we always have to remind you that if you Google more in common pod, It'll take you right to our, we'll we'll be right there at the top. So, or, you know, front page. So feel free, go to our website. You can find our podcast, our blogs, our contacts, uh, merchandise, and different ways to support us.
1: And if you like this episode or any other episode that you have heard, share it. Sharing is caring. Share it on your socials. And so, you know, give, give somebody else the chance to enjoy it as well. And we'd really appreciate it. We already appreciate you for listening, but we would appreciate it if you share as well. So, Keith, uh, last we had Mr. Carlito, our undercover Hispanic, uh, on. What did you, you take away from that? Just
0: I mean, th- So, a couple of things. One, it was a fun conversation, right? I mean, we recorded that er- early in 2018. Um, you know, we talked about a lot of things. It was... It was from one thing to the next and we, we really, uh, it, was, it was just fun. But one of the things that I really took away was, you know, just solidifying on this idea that racism really isn't about anything less than what's on your skin, right? Like the fact that he presents white and so white people can complain about mexicans to him even though he's mexican and not think anything of it It has nothing to do with his person it has nothing to do with anybody else as a human being other than what they look like um and and it's just bottom line like and and it was such a that to me of all the things in that conversation that 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 piece stood out so much
1: how about you that was definitely my that was my favorite too undercover Hispanic. like when he said it I lost my cool I just I just had to laugh and but I get it and I actually saw him recently and we got to talk about it more and he's just like you'd be amazed how many how much I've heard about Mexicans and and he's like I don't always call it out cuz sometimes I don't feel safe like if I if I say something and and but he he also realizes that he has that luxury of being in a situation and feeling safe even though somebody else is talking bad about him and just not realizing it so, yep. you know, yeah, it, but it, overall, great conversation. The dude uh, had me thinking for a long time. So this week, I think we have a guest.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, I would I would uh, pause it to say you are correct. Um, <laughs> we do have a guest. Huzzah. In fact, I'm really excited again, as always, about this guest, Sophie Barron. Uh, Sophie is the executive director of Table Talk Global, our tried and true initial partnership that we're really um, doing a lot of things with and we're really excited. Uh, Table Talk Global envisions a world in which college and high school students and community members alike can naturally create an inclusive, vibrant campus community throughout increased connection and conversation. Um, Sophie represents... Table Talk Global and herself in this conversation like what 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 things do we get into
1: So we talk about Table Talk how it started how she got involved um, she's Jewish so we talk about that and growing up in the center of this country and a predominantly christian school and what that experience was like for her like kind of the isolation that she felt and the college experience and how Table Talk's trying to uh, is actually influencing that um what else yeah we get i mean
0: and we stuff. get into a lot of how that experience led her to want to learn about other people and get involved in other communities and bring people together um it's a really awesome story and we're really excited to bring it to you so uh you know this is more in common as always hey enjoy this show
1: expose evaluate evolve
2: You know, the minute you realize the world doesn't think like you, that's when you grow. I was sitting in seventh grade history class, and we were delving into this really cool unit on World War II. Of course, this was the chapter where we started diving into what the Holocaust was, and for a lot of my classmates, this was probably the first time they were learning about it. And I'm not even kidding, just picture the teacher standing at the front of the room, and any time he said Jew or Jewish, people would, but not even in like a a metaphorical sense. Everyone turned their heads and looked at me and it just made me feel so isolated. And so I think I grew up feeling like I wasn't like everyone else and I wanted to do something about it.
0: Welcome back to More In Common or welcome to More In Common if this is your first time. Today we have Sophie Barron, Executive Director of Table Talk. What up, Sophie? Sophie, how are you today?
2: I'm doing great. How are you? I'm so happy to be here.
0: Good to have you. We're excited to have you. Um, it's been great. We've, we've started building an awesome partnership together. Our organizations are, are, have done some cool things recently. I'm sure we'll talk about those in a little bit, but we've plugged table talk in the past, um, as a, as a form of pride to the partnership. And, you know, in our short 42nd plug, we probably didn't do it as much justice as you can do it. But if you could, you know, off the top, tell us a little bit about table talk and what table talk is all about.
2: For sure. I would love to. So Table Talk Global is a nonprofit that helps high school and college students have conversations outside of the classroom. It sounds so simple. And we really are just trying to get different types of people to meet in a variety of creative ways that maybe aren't currently happening on campus.
1: Which is awesome. And kind of leads me into how did you get involved? Like, why is that important to you?
2: Totally. So I have a really good friend who went to Emory, whose name is Ami. And he sat me down one day at a table, very important plot piece. Um,
0: and <laughs> gotta be at a table. It's gotta be at a table. Always.
2: Um, and he brought up this idea to start something at Penn. And I was only a sophomore. I didn't really know what it was all about. And I ended up taking this idea home with me to end up starting a club and I didn't think it was for me but I did some really good self-reflection and I realized that there wasn't really anything at my school that helped bring different types of people together I I joined clubs I had friends on my hall I joined a sorority but I wasn't really branching out outside of those groups and so after doing some you know, deep diving into who I am and what the culture is like on campus, I decided to start a chapter of Table Talk, which at the time was the second chapter, and started it on campus. And after a couple of years, I started realizing that all my friends wanted to, you know, see what it was about and figure it out for their campuses too.
1: So, like, I'm super simple, as Keith and many of our listeners know. And I'm not saying that to beat myself up, but like, I'm going to ask a question that's somewhat procedural and basic, you said you did some reflection and deep dive into, like, what did that look like for you? Like, what is that? Is that journaling? Is it meditating? Like, what was it like a five minute thing, a 30 minute thing, a week thing? Like, what What was that?
2: For sure. So I ended up going home. I'm from Kansas. And I did some, some meditating in a way that isn't so traditional. I kind of sat down and laid out everything in my head Um, and really just started thinking about who I was and who I wanted to be and what I wanted my experience to look like. And I started thinking all of that through and started writing down all these ideas I was having afterwards and decided that because of my background and what I had experienced up to that point, this was the right move for me. And I was so excited to give it a try.
0: What, so how long of a process was that kind of going down that train of thought?
2: So... I think it happened in one long sitting, but it was over the course of winter break that really got me to come around to the idea. Um, And then when I got back to campus in January, I was starting. I was sending a million emails to every campus leader of every student organization, every faculty member, anyone I could think of just saying, hey, I'm starting this club. It's called Table Talk. What do you think? Want to grab coffee? I'd love to tell you about it. How can we how can we impact Penn? What can we do together to bring this change? Um, And I just went full speed ahead. But I think it really required thinking about what I wanted my college experience to look like in order to even realize that this was a a route for me to take.
0: So you said based on your background, uh, that kind of made you realize that not being in a just a single club that brought single demographic together you wanted to be a part of something that didn't exist what was it about your background that led you to that final decision
2: for sure so i think i have to start with the platitude you're not in kansas anymore because i think it really led to who i was when i was growing up i i attended an incredible school but over the years i just realized that i was so different i was the only jewish student in my grade of about 70 kids and Every time I was kind of called out for being the only one in a lot of ways, I I realized that I just really wanted to be surrounded by more people who were like me. And when I say that, I think I meant I wanted to be around Jewish kids my age. I grew up my whole life feeling that I wasn't supposed to be Jewish and that it was a burden and I never wanted to be associated with it. And it's because everyone around me was partaking in something else. And so well, when it came...
1: Sorry, real quick question. You said you were called out um, for it. Was it was it overt or was it covert?
2: It was unfortunately very overt. I I have so many little vignettes in my head of when it happened. Um, I think. The highlight reel would include anytime I was in choir, I love to sing, Um, and, you know, it would be time for the holiday concert, which really meant the Christmas concert, but they called it the holiday concert. And we'd be singing songs, um, kind of praising Jesus, and I would still stand and sing the rest of the song, but just opt out of certain phrases. And people kind of gave me a hard time, both in the class and the teacher, saying, why aren't you participating? That made me feel very uncomfortable or hmm. uh, just say ignorant things like, do you speak Jewish? And they, they just really did, didn't understand what it even meant to be a Jew. Um,
1: did you respond, then, do you speak American?
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> that's actually a really nice segue too, because I oftentimes got asked if I celebrate Thanksgiving. And then my response would, would be, well, really? I'm an American, so... Yes, I love Thanksgiving. Um, do you celebrate Thanksgiving? And it would kind of make them feel uncomfortable in that moment. But I felt like that uncomfortability was necessary. Um, and then I've, I've got to throw out this last one just because it kind of always stuck with me. I was sitting in seventh grade history class and we were delving into this really cool unit on World War Two, And of course, this was the chapter where we started diving into what the Holocaust was. And for a lot of my classmates, this was probably the first time they were learning about it. And I'm not even kidding. Just picture the teacher standing at the front of the room and any time he said Jew or Jewish,
1: everybody looked at
2: people you. would but not even in like a a metaphorical sense. Everyone turned their heads and looked at me. And it just made me feel so isolated. And so I think I grew up feeling Like I wasn't like everyone else and I wanted to do something about it. So kind of taking that in.
1: I closed my eyes. And as soon as you started to say it, I was like, that's how I felt in the slavery units. But I remember, I remember that feeling. And then even today in corporate world, I'll be in a meeting and somebody will say something about being black or African-American and everybody's like, Rodney, you want to comment on that? Like, no, I don't want to comment on something for all of a different people that I can't speak for.
2: For sure. And I think in a way, these groups of people kind of expect you to be a token of that culture or race or religion. And I don't know, I never expected growing up to kind of have to assume that role. So it took some self-discovery to kind of navigate what that would look like.
0: How did you navigate that growing up? So. You said something, and real quick in particular, you said something very specific. It, people didn't seem to know what it meant to be Jewish. Like, so, how with that framework and just kind of your experience almost of survival, and, and it probably that's too strong of a word, but at the same time, you, you have to make that work. How did you make that work? and And did you help promote that idea of this is what it means to be Jewish?
2: So I think it was a mix of optimism with seeking it out on my own. So anytime there was a Jewish holiday, I would always bring in things to school, whether it was Passover, I would bring matzah to my classroom, or if it was Hanukkah, I'd invite some friends over to kind of celebrate it and light the candles just so they would be exposed to what it meant. Because in a way, I felt some responsibility to be who I was in a way that would inform them. Because Wichita is a small sampling, I mean, in the world, there are so many Jews. So I was hoping that, you know, by introducing them to the concept, that would kind of prepare them to interact with other Jews in the future. But then at the same time, I, at a very young age, am so lucky to have started attending Jewish summer camp. And that honestly changed everything for me because it was the first time I was around people who looked like me and had the same background and just understood me on a fundamental level. And I think. Through, of course, still trying to introduce my friends at home to what Judaism was. I think seeking out this realm where I was surrounded by other Jews my age just started to destigmatize what it meant to be a Jew and really normalized it for me in a way that made me more proud of who I was. So that's kind of how I navigated. I kind of took in the ignorance in a way that hopefully would teach the people around me and then seek out Judaism on my own as well.
1: What was that? what were you looking at when you were growing up in Kansas? And then when you got to camp, you're like, wait a second. Yeah. Like, did you, did you feel out like, um, like what, what did you, what you felt out of place or like, how did you, how did you identify with not looking, not looking the same as those around you? Like, how did that present?
2: So I don't know that I necessarily traditionally look like a Jewish person, but I think when I when I mean that I was surrounded by people who looked like me, I think I mean being in an environment in which people felt comfortable wearing kipot, you know, the head coverings or speaking openly about what it means to be a Jew in America or talking about Israel and being in that environment with other people my age who were Jews really kind of Allowed me to be more of who I was, too. And I wasn't necessarily the most religious person, but I think, at least through my eyes, it was just a group of people who looked like, you know, the people that I didn't necessarily experience growing up who had the same so, views.
1: It's interesting, because it's almost like you're taking the, like the, the, the sense of belonging, like finding a community, a group, a tribe, whatever you want to call it, like that has a similar foundation of understanding made you feel like you fit in, like you looked more like that group, even though that, that may or may not have been a component of the other groups, but the feeling of it, I've never even thought about that That, before. That that visual identity,
0: Mm -hmm. like saying you're Jewish, you know, being Jewish in all of the experiences around it almost gave you this physical identity at the same time, based on what you see, And see in others, and yeah, versus all of the people who don't. Um, Now, what drove you like what drove you to want to do that versus shun, vilify, run away, be angry?
2: I think when I was brought up, I was so lucky to be a part of such a vibrant Jewish family that allowed me, in a way, to know that it was important to be a Jew and that I had you know, a certain value system to uphold. And so I think I was so lucky to have older cousins as role models that pointed me towards resources and also just led by action to show me what it meant to be a young Jewish person in America. And I think with that kind of as my sounding board led me to kind of explore and navigate Lower school, middle school, high school, with this certain outlook that I didn't need to be like everyone else. I think it was a combination of a bunch of things. I'm the oldest of three. So I was kind of brought up to be a pioneer of sorts, of always trying new things first, and I guess being the person to reach out and take risks. And I think I just started becoming someone who wanted to be different. And it ended up becoming something that I wanted to do in a lot of other areas of my life. And I just didn't see the point in being ashamed of it anymore.
0: So in that, and that's an awesome evolution um, in that led you to this place of reflection where you said, you know, based on my experiences growing up, I felt like this is the necessary. What in all of that is what really inspired you to say, yes, I need to start, start a table talk chapter club at UPenn.
2: So, I definitely gave in to college culture in the first year of college. I was joining every club. I was always introducing myself to the people in line behind me in the dining hall. And I always wanted to be the person who knew what was going on and interacting with as many people as possible. I think coming in with that wide-eyed, cans-in perspective just made me want to get as much out of Penn as I possibly could. But then what ended up happening is I kind of gave in to what this culture was that I didn't realize existed until about sophomore year where I started joining all of these groups and making friends and being a part of different communities that ended up reflecting who I was. I mean, quite frankly, I joined the quote unquote Jewish sorority. I was in the Jewish acapella group. I ended up being on Hillel board, which is, you know, the student union essentially for Jews on campus. And I was so excited to finally be in an environment where I was around people, again, who reflected that value system that I so wanted when I was growing up in Wichita. And I started thinking to myself, okay, so this is what I'm involved in. These are the people I'm spending time with. Let me just take a step back and look at what everyone else is doing too. And I started realizing that everyone around me on campus was doing the same exact thing with their identity groups. I mean, Someone on my hall who was on the football team only spent time with the football guys. Or my friend who was in the Muslim Students Association only really spent time with the other Muslim students on campus. And I started realizing that this is kind of what the culture looked like. Everyone subscribed to groups of like-minded people and surrounded themselves with people who looked similarly to them and had the same views and maybe are from the same places geographically. And that's kind of when I had an aha moment. I, I thought that I was supposed to come to college to meet all different types of people. I mean, every college website has a large section where they pride themselves in their rich diversity from people all over the world and different backgrounds in different states. And I came to campus and there wasn't any formal vehicle to bring me together with different types of people, even though they were there. I just wasn't meeting them. And so I wanted to do something about it. I just had this big desire to want to find a creative way to get people to meet and get people who didn't typically interact to interact.
0: But then it comes to that point. You started it. What was the response? Like, how, how did that early stage of table talk when it's a club at UPenn and only the second chapter, how did that go for you? in trying to bring all of these groups together?
2: So we definitely dealt with a lot of skepticism, as I'm sure you can imagine, taking inflatable sofas and putting them in a communal area of campus. There are bound to be people who don't believe in it and don't want to approach. It's kind of like if someone tries to hand you a flyer on a college campus, you want to run away, put your headphones in, pretend like you have somewhere to be. You have a test you have to take or you have to study. You do not want to be involved. Yeah. So we got a lot of no's at the beginning because we realized that we were really trying to change a culture and that's not something you can do overnight. So it took people a lot are of- People resistant
1: to change.
2: A hundred percent. So we really took the approach of trying to build a community. We got people to join the organization and through you know trial and error, we ended up with a really diverse group of students. And through that inner community, we just tried to attract more people to what it was that we were doing. And it took some time, but by the time- you know, we had our fifth campus couches, people started associating it with table talk. And people wanted to come meet someone new, oh, I'm going to go eat lunch anyway, might as well go sit on a couch and meet someone while I'm doing it. And so I think, as we began to normalize that culture, we started to actually draw in more people to make a difference. So it definitely took a little bit of time and some skepticism. I still remember the first time we had a campus couches, Someone came up to me and pulled me aside and said, excuse me, you need to shut this down. We don't allow fraternities to have activities in the middle of campus. And I was so worried that they were going to ruin the whole trajectory of what table talk would be on campus because this was someone from the administration. But I had to backtrack and say, no, 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 this is a new club. We're all about bringing different types of people together who wouldn't typically meet. This is one of our initiatives. This is what we're trying to do. We have no agenda. We just want to bring people together together. And I think once I kind of spoke to her about what it was, she was like, "Oh, carry on, have a great time." Um, but there are definitely times where people come to me and say, "I don't understand why this needs to exist. Why would I want to join this club? I'm happy with my friends. I want to stay. I want to stay with the people I'm comfortable with. Why? Why would I join Table Talk?" And you know, I have to kind of appeal to the universality of it, right? Like we're supposed to be exposing ourselves to diverse perspectives and backgrounds, and that's what college is for, and if we continue to stay in these groups, they're going to become echo chambers, and especially currently in our country, we could use some more listening and some conversation. So, I think just it just, just takes getting a- to,
1: just getting ready to ask if you had a more expansive view on why we should invest in uh, different points of view and different uh, diversifying our our inputs, if you will, and our and our connections.
2: I'm definitely interested to hear what you think too, but at least the way that I take it is the more we expose ourselves to different viewpoints and the more we interact with different types of people, the more we're able to see the world in a different lens that would allow us to kind of break down our own biases in a way that could kind of expose you to things you had never thought of before. So I feel like college campuses and even high school campuses serve as microcosms of the world in a way. And we've got to practice there what we want the world to look like. And if we're on a campus and we're only hanging out with people who look and think like us, then we're really you know at a disadvantage to being able to think more worldly and find ways to expand how we think, because I'm such a fan of the sentiment that, You know, the minute you realize the world doesn't think like you, that's when you grow. And Hmm. I think there's a lot of growth that hasn't been happening on these campuses because we're so comfortable Hmm. in our groups. And so that's kind of my take on it.
0: I have a cousin who recently, um, in a very liberal school in Connecticut, uh, decided to join the Republican uh, club for the young Republican club for her school. And she lost friends over it. Um, people just did disowned her, And I think that represents to what you're saying is this, it's, it, it's a need to expose yourself against the perspectives that you have in your mind about other people. It's breaking down this idea that what other people do and think in their free world and free time is Matters to how you think, right? And it's really giving space to different. It's giving space to that, to that existence. And it takes, takes time, it takes talent, and it takes skill sometimes to really look at somebody and say, okay, I have all of these preconceived notions about you. And these preconceived notions exist for a reason one reason or another right and the preconceived notions need to be broken down i am going to shut them off and i want to listen to your story and i want to listen to who you are and i want to listen to that and realizing that if that person then validates all of your preconceived notions about the group that they're in that it's still only one individual that's not the group so the next individual I'm gonna have that same conversation with. And it's not and it's making sure that we realize each person has their own story, they have their own reason for thinking. And sometimes those think, those thought processes do negatively impact broader groups, but really trying to work in a unifying fashion to break down those negative impacts because you, you can't do it by yourself and you can't do it with just your friends. You That's need true. everybody on board.
2: I know. And it's so interesting you say that because You might think I'm weird for saying this, but I actually, I play this game with myself and it started when I was traveling a couple of summers ago where I would see someone either in a coffee shop or on the street or at a museum. And in my head, I would start forming these preconceived notions about that person or that family or that group of people. And what I would do is I would kind of form that profile in my head and really give into my Mm -hmm. biases. But then the game would be actually having to go find out whether I was right or wrong. So I would step outside my shell, Mm. oftentimes even just introducing myself to someone who ended up not speaking English. But in my head, you know, I thought they spoke English and I wanted to confirm or deny my bias to actually challenge the way that I was picturing people and groups, whether, you know, it was in Europe or in the US and I still play it now with myself to make sure that I'm constantly challenging how I'm forming those biases and how I can break them down too because I think the key difference is that people don't take that extra step. People don't actually go out to try and challenge what they're thinking and you know really holding on to those biases that are they're harmful. And, they're
0: harmful. and it's really hard. Like, I find myself in certain circumstances with certain people who validate certain biases, it's really hard to just be in the moment, be kind, have an honest discussion, civil. Even if it's raising voices, it's still a place of commonality. Because at the end of the day, we all drink water. We all eat food. We all use the same type of facilities, right? We all need the air to survive and we all need each other. Like as much of a individual society that we live in, we still depend on each other. If you don't work, it impacts me. And you know, like the the smallest things impact each other, and if we don't, you know, find a way to just get to know those smallest similarities, then uh, yeah, I mean, it it hurts us in the long run, right? And and you'd think it was so easy. It's conversation, right? It's it's connection. You'd think it was so 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 easy, but it's not. Right. I don't
1: I don't think I've played that game. I like it though. I'm gonna try it. Uh, yeah. You should. <laughs> I I do, but I have found that travel has been a big way to break down just all kinds of notions. And then also not just what I think, but I can see it when I break somebody else's when they meet me, like and I'm in France and I can speak French and they're like, an American black dude can speak French. And they're like, oh, okay, maybe Americans aren't so bad. And I'm like, yeah, maybe Frenchmen aren't so bad. And like, <laughs> you know, you can, the when you can see it, like one of my favorite instances i was at a bar in austin texas and i was with this dude who i think he actually referred to himself as a redneck which like i was like all right um just like and he ended up being this super super he was just a super conservative dude he's like i don't know any black people blah 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 and like we sat there had like three or four drinks together had a good time like had good conversation he at some point he looked over he's like I never, he's like, I would have never talked to you and I would have never thought we would have, could have had a conversation. And I was like, yeah, see what happens when you just, when you just try. Right. Yeah.
0: And, and you know, and and I know we like to simplify and group and put things into places that we can process, but when it comes to people, it's a detriment and it's a protection mechanism in an evolutionary sense. But in the modern sense, that protectionism isn't, isn't, necessary or yeah. as necessary it's, it's I smart should for say tigers and lions like I can right see. <laughs> and I have to ask this question of of perseverance and how you through the skepticism and the early skepticism and that woman coming and saying no you can't or the administrator coming and saying no you can't be here how did you push through and and you know make it work
2: I think it was capitalizing on all of the personal moments that proved the concept. And I mean, mm. selfishly, Table Talk exposed me to the most incredible, most fascinating people that I would have never met otherwise. And I think in internalizing those moments and proving the concept, at least to myself and the people that we were impacting directly through the club or people who attended our events, we could actually feel the pulse of how they were experiencing new people and new perspectives and those those personal moments were what led me to want to seek out more of them. And I think the the perseverance really came in just discovering my passion for meeting new people. And I know we were just talking about travel, but my, my whole realization to go further with Table Talk actually occurred when I was traveling. And I went to a restaurant and sat at a shared table with six other people who I'd never met before. And we ended up sitting in the restaurant for six hours just discovering things about our lives and what we had in common, even though we were from all different places, all different backgrounds. And so I started realizing, you know, beyond a campus, these moments could exist anywhere. And that was the moment where I just, I realized that this was my calling and I just wanted to do everything in my power, just show people the magic of those moments of connection. And though we haven't necessarily perfected the concept and we don't know if every interaction really opens up someone's perspective yet, but... At the very least, we're trying it and we're putting ourselves out there to just get people in a room to even begin to experience what tabletop could be or just meeting a new person. So,
1: I heard um, last week I heard Carol Costello. She's a CNN news anchor at a TED event out here. And she ended with a quote I'm going to have to look up because now that I'm thinking about it, I'm going to butcher this. But basic premise was... When the heart is touched by personal experience, the mind is forced to consider change. Huh. Wow.
0: What's it, I mean, as much as that's a paraphrase if it isn't exact because it was, you know, uh, an amazing
1: quote. When the heart is touched by direct experience, the mind may be challenged to change.
2: I love that.
0: I think what's what's great about that too is it kind of reflects what we're trying to do in a different type of way, right? But I, I just, I just love how you you persevered. And I have to ask the question: You were a club, and now you're a, a, a profiled five hundred one c three on um, major news get outlets good press, and, yeah, a and little NPR. Get good press. That's where I heard about you. At what point did that transition happen to a full on organization?
2: So. I think it goes back to that moment that I experienced at a shared table in Sweden. And after that, I, I couldn't see myself doing anything else. I was a Mm. a recent college grad and I was at this point where I needed to decide between going to get a traditional job. Like a lot of my friends were doing, or if I'm really going to take time to pursue this idea. And I think a combination of sitting at at that table and interacting with this group of strangers for over six hours, mixed with a realization that there was a common cold that existed on all of these campuses, I just decided to go for it. I felt like there's this momentum in our country and more so our world right now where people are wanting to connect to each other. There's this desire for innate human connection that I think in a beautiful way lends itself to campuses, which is where we're starting currently, but hopefully soon communities and corporations and larger spaces where you're sharing, you know, experiences with other people. I think there are so many ways to connect people. And that was the jumping off point. I realized I wanted to pursue this. I wanted to devote, you know, this next chapter of my life to bringing people together.
0: I think there's a I I think... Expanding on that, there's this macro desire for a lot of people, and this is my my thesis if I were to do one, uh, macro desire for a lot of people to, to represent the fact that we aren't as polarized because I'm not polarized. You're not polarized, you're not polarized. We know some people who are, but the general experience that we have does not prove that out. yet we see it every day and are reminded every day we are as polarized as ever. and I think there's a lot of people that want to break that down. They just don't know how. I think so the, I love that you're a big
1: part of that. The people the the, the things that, and I, I, the things that are polarized, I, I don't think they're people. I think there are topics that are polarizing that certain people tend to cling on, cling, cling to. You know, those topics become polarizing and then we see those people as polarizing, but it's like, no, they just, ha- they care about one thing. Like we saw this a lot with the last election cycle with Trump and Hillary. Um, there were there were divisive topics. And then Keith, this goes back to the thing you were telling me about, was he a Reagan Advisor, what, what the guy that was talking about ni- the nineteen ninety four mm-hmm. politics? He
0: was um, he was Newt Gingrich's um, political advisor in the nineteen ninety four uh, midterms after Clinton got elected and the Republicans hadn't had the House or in forty years, and he created an ecosystem of polarizing ideas.
1: Like so, basically, they figured out what the what were the topics that were the most polarizing, and then they campaigned on those and they made those the issues of the election when the end of the day, like there are so many more things than the three or four things that we all tend to.
0: And I think, I think what that reflects is a text that you sent me recently in a group text chat, um, around how this will quote unquote, could the system is rigged, but the idea that, You know, when, when people gain power, they want to maintain power and they do it at the be at the, at the consequence of, of of others. And we need to maintain the individual powers that we have in our lives to make sure that we are human with each other, regardless of what we have to do and regardless of who's in power. So we can, even a constitutional capability, we are the people that govern this land, not the people that are in power.
2: I was even going to say the method that we've at least tried to use on our campuses is to take those issues that become polarizing mm. and open up a space to actually talk about them with people who share different mm. views. So you brought up the 2016 election and at Penn we hosted an event on politics we called it Your Election 2016 and what we did mm. is we took our unique approach by first of all reaching out to all of the political communities on campus that exist but probably never interact or collaborate. So we pulled all of these leaders into a room, you know, the leaders of the Penn Democrats, the Penn Republicans, the Government and Politics Association, the large political leaders on campus, Penn Leads the Vote, the publications that were political, brought all of these leaders into a room and said, hey, let's host the first event this campus has ever had about politics with all of these representatives. And what we did is we created a mutual source sheet of different questions to talk about and it was so fascinating because for the first time, people came to this event to talk about politics, but were reflecting their own viewpoints to people who thought totally differently than themselves, but were equally as passionate. So it was an, a thought experiment on what it would look like to actually take these polarizing issues and bring them to an accessible space over free food, of course, <laughs> um, and just bring leaders. Hey, food's a good way to do it. 100% and just tapping into these existing communities would bring diverse voices to the event but also gave these leaders a sense of ownership to talk about a topic with people who reflect different viewpoints. So that's kind of the model we've now tried to adopt to take these polarizing issues and make them, you know, more mainstream.
0: How is that how did that go and how is it going?
2: It was awesome. That event was really successful, um, and we were so grateful that these leaders agreed to partner with us. And since then, we've done the same system, but with different topics, whether it's mental health, gender, religion, sexuality, food, travel, culture. Um, and we kind of take those topics and tap into these existing communities on campus to make sure that, you know, as a body, as Table Talk, we're not coming in to say, hey, We know everything about mental health. Come talk about this with us. We're saying, hey, you are the experts in this field. Your work on campus operates in this sector. Let's bring in your ideas and sit down together and come up with an event that would be completely balanced and representative of all sides of the issue to actually have a productive conversation. Um, And so it's been really interesting to kind of use that as now our pioneered table talk model to have a table talk.
1: That's cool. I was going to ask you, what's the equation, what's the elixir for making a safe space? and then So that that preparation of saying, hey, let's sit down and make an agenda that everybody's comfortable with so they can come in feeling like at least they can be heard because everybody wants to be heard to some degree. So that's pretty cool. It's very cool. I
0: mean, I think that's ultimately what it comes down to, right? Especially in these polarizing topics is you get so – anchored on your position that you don't hear the other one and then they don't hear you and it becomes this, this cycle now and all the years you've been doing this for, for how many years now?
2: So originally started at Penn in 2015. So three years. Um, and it's been really fun to kind of experiment with what's worked and what hasn't and try to perfect this elixir, like you said, for having conversations and also just connecting with people, without necessarily an agenda, just trying to find different ways to bring people together.
0: What are some of the key things and not intended to be a leading question while being a leading question, some of the key, but what are some of the key things that you have learned about conversation that people can easily repeat in their own lives? Um, Because that's ultimately, for us, what we're trying to do is create this roadmap of execution (sighs) that if I'm in that moment and something happens and someone brings up immigration, protesting, or guns, or religion, or whatever it may be, I may not be prepared with the facts, but I'm prepared with the tools to engage in that dialogue without running away or without creating hostility.
2: Totally. So first and foremost, I would say the underlying theme, at least thus far in this conversation that we all have agreed upon is that everyone comes to the table with their own experiences. And we want to make sure that everyone feels comfortable in not being an expert on the topic, but knowing that they can include their own experiences to kind of shape how they think and feel. So I think one of the biggest tools and takeaways that we at least have tried to teach our members and share throughout the value system of Table Talk Global is that you should feel totally empowered to bring who you are to the table, but at the same time, acknowledge that what you may think and feel could be wrong or could be the opposite of what someone else thinks. So we're trying to prepare people to come in to share and also to accept that the conversation doesn't have to be so formal. We're trying to make dialogue trendy again. We want to bring people in to have fun and talk about these topics in a way that differentiates it from being inside the classroom. And a lot of that, in my opinion, is making sure that no one's you know raising their hands or writing vigorous notes, but at the same time, taking their time and being able to insert their own experiences. And one thing we try to do at least for the events that have, you know, trickier subject matters is to bring conversation norms into play and have the person from table talk who's leading the conversation start with a fun icebreaker but then segue by saying, "Hey, this is totally informal. You can share anything you want. You can also sit there and only listen." But make sure that when you're sharing, you speak from your own perspective and use, you know, the famous I statement and make sure that what you're sharing really reflects you know how you think and feel to make sure we're not placing blame or you know our own agendas onto the people at our table so
0: i think that that concept of i statements is it, it's something that i hear all the time when people talk about their experience as we we feel we do they do they do. It, wh- whatever it may be that you're discussing, there's this in this sentiment of generalization that doesn't necessarily apply because if I'm having a one-on-one conversation with someone I know or don't know, we could actually feel or have that same experience, but interpret it and and have it very differently. And so when you say we, I think you're including me, but I'm not feeling that same way versus saying I have experienced it this way. I have internalized it this way. And this is what I learned from it. And this is why I do this. And I'm so passionate about that idea and that concept because – we do spend a lot of time saying "we" rather than "I," and and, um, and you know it's an interesting phenomenon in the quote-unquote polarization of of what's happening, especially in in the world today.
2: I totally we. agree.
0: Now, you said you come with uh, some conversational tips and tricks um, to these uh, table talk events. Like, what are some of the the, the most important ones or the critical ones that you find?
2: I would say most recently, we're going to start having all of our leaders bring, you know, our incredible guide, be open to listen to the table and be able to have our leaders and people on campus use that as a resource to remember that at the very least they could show up and grab food and then sit at a table and listen. You don't always have to insert what you're thinking and feeling. You could just sit back and kind of process what everyone else is sharing. And I think a mix of listening and sharing your own personal experience has been kind of our current recipe for success.
1: And when you say our guide, you mean our, the one that we, More In Common in Table Talk made Yes, I do. Together. We have created a guide, um, phase
0: one of eight that that we are putting together in conjunction with table talk and we're super excited about it. And you can, if you're not already signed up as a subscriber to the more in common pod website, you can gain access to it from the landing page, um, by signing up and, uh, subscribing to our newsletter. And you can also gain access to it through table talks website, um, in the exact same way, Sophie
2: exact same way.
0: tabletalkglobal.org. And it's a download, it's a PDF, you can print it and you can you can you can have it for whatever you want and we will have more to come um, in the uh, over over the course of 2019. So we're really excited.
2: I think we're even thinking about encouraging our table talkers to bring it home with their families for Thanksgiving and use it oh. at the table to really be a resource for how to navigate those difficult family conversations too, not just on campus.
1: That's amazing, I was, especially I guess post midterms. Like things, I mean, the climate right now. I would be really interested to hear how, if any, do it, and if they do, how it goes. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'll keep it's, you it's, posted.
0: Uh, no, please do. We'd we'd love to hear that feedback. Coming back to the conversation that we were having before we shamelessly plugged ourselves, which was awesome for all of us, right? Super shameless. Um, What preconceptions did you have prior to table talk about conversation that have since Mm. been demolished as a result of your experiences?
1: Or even enhanced.
0: Or, Or enhanced, yeah, for that matter.
2: I think just the very basic principle of acknowledging that what you're thinking could be wrong, or just isn't what the majority of people in the room are thinking was key for me. Coming to college, I think it was just acknowledging that when I'm having a conversation, I need to know that I, I could be completely wrong. And it's all about finding out. Like I, I want to educate myself and learn as much as I can in order to actually discover where my thought process lies against the backdrop of different types of people. Because I think I was so used to being in a group of like-minded individuals at home and coming to college really exposed me to the notion that I could be in a room full of people and be the only one who thinks a certain way. And so I think that has completely changed the game in terms of how I think when it comes to conversation. Um, What about you guys?
0: I think, I think for me um, and this is something that I struggle with um, often is I'm a very opinionated person and I listen to things all the time and I try to be as educated and informed and I try to create informed positions and I try to listen um, to all sides of the argument to, you know, just to make sure that I'm, I'm paying enough attention with sources that I think our, our value and not just you know hyperbolic hyperbolic and hateful And what I find is that when I'm in a position and specifically about politics is that I have to make a conscientious effort to go through all of the things in our you know our guide and everything that we talk about and everything that we try to do here because that's the biggest thing I've learned is this space that we create, is super helpful to this space. And really, how do I take that space and create it everywhere I go, no matter what the conversation is about? And I think that is the biggest learning I've I've had in self-reflection is that one, I'm not good at it and two that I need to be better at creating this space wherever I go because it's this space that makes for rich dialogue that matters. It's not necessarily me or Rodney or the things that we're saying or the questions that we're asking. It's just the space that we create and and being able to give that to other people.
2: Yeah. And going off of that, I think recently I've just been trying to practice what we preach. I mean, the more we're trying to encourage everyone around us to interact with different types of people, I've been really trying to internalize it and whether i'm in a coffee shop or at a restaurant i've really just been enjoying going alone at the excitement yeah. of hopefully meeting someone new and recently throughout you know new york i've just been meeting the most fascinating people trying to put myself out there to both learn more and meet different types of people that i wouldn't typically interact with but also you know kind of laugh at the fact that i'll go somewhere alone when really I can't handle being alone for more than a couple of minutes before having to speak to the person next to me. And i have just been trying to create those environments around me in hoping that it would pay it forward and that the next person would interact with someone that they've never interacted with before the next time they're on an airplane or in an elevator. um, And I've just met the most fascinating people. And I've been trying to really practice it not only in real life, but honestly, also on social media. I've been really trying to follow different types of people and public figures and accounts on Instagram and Twitter that challenge my current circles and really present other sides of an argument or an equation just to make sure that every day I'm not reading my newsfeed as a perfect ecosystem of politics. I I need to make sure that I'm exposing myself to all different sides. And I think it could even start so easily on people's newsfeeds.
0: You, you, um, you actually have inspired us to listen to, um, different podcasts that reflect differing points of view. Um, I now actually click on opposing view articles, um, just, you know, to read and, and understand depending, you know, so long as it's, it's a factual based understanding of the circumstance. And so, um, so thank you for, for giving that to us in prior, prior discussions as we've, you know, been talking a lot over the last couple of months. Um, but you bring up something interesting in social media and how do you and this is something that's that's very passionate you know, you're very passionate about um with all of this connecting of humanity social media is uh in some ways uh, a a great facilitator of that connection but also a great um d- detractor from that connection and-
2: i think the ultimate paradox of You know, what we're trying to discover right now as a nonprofit is how do we balance social media with our overall message of trying to reinvigorate face-to-face conversation? I think it's a tricky line to balance because we love social media and believe in its ability to connect people and, you know, connect different types of people, especially when it comes to meeting our audience where they are. We're primarily working with college and high school students. And we believe that social media are the best way to kind of meet those students where they are to bring the conversation to them and be able to share what they're doing to hopefully build this culture and spread this, you know, movement. But at the same time, there's a lot of research that's come out that has proven social media are actually destructive to network ties. And the more we're hiding behind our devices, the more we're you know, drawing ourselves away from human connection. And so I think it's something we're going to have to keep exploring and see how it evolves. But it's kind of, it's really interesting to think about when it comes to our work of trying to bring people together and how that's going to evolve over time. And we at least try at our events to make sure that the conversations we're having, we always, at the end of our events, when we're closing, say, Hey, go exchange contact information with someone you met tonight to hope that they'll follow up on that conversation. But we haven't been following those ties and those relationships and where they've led. Mm -hmm. But we hope that by in its very general essence of connecting someone at the end of one of our conversations or even someone who came and sat down on a couch for a little that we're encouraging people to form stronger ties with the people they've met. And maybe social media are the vehicle by which they set up a coffee date or stay connected until they have another conversation. But it's an interesting balance, and we haven't really perfected it.
1: I find myself feeling somewhat hypocritical recently, especially over the last week. I've I've done a lot to... Like, some, a lot of extreme measures to disconnect from, like, my phone and social media without signing off. But, like, I very rarely sign on. And it's typically, for more in common, if I'm going to post about an episode, that's basically it. Like, just updates. and Because I don't want to spend time on Instagram. And I'm, like, so I'm asking other people to spend time on it to come follow our stuff. But I don't want to be on it. It's this weird thing that i'm trying to work through right now but um but i feel you like there you do have to meet people where they are like you can talk you could have the best conversation thing going on since forever but if nobody knows about it then nobody can participate i've read this in two contexts recently uh one with the idea of notifications and one with nutrition and, and diet and eating um Everything in our environment, in our ecosystem, technology has evolved far faster than human beings. Like for all intents and purposes, like we are very close to that caveman, Cro-Magnon creature. Like we're we're far closer to that than we are whatever version next is. And that is troubling for a couple of reasons. One, companies that need to get our attention. So, this is where some of the hypocritical feeling comes in for me. Like, companies want, need to get our attention or want to get our attention because they have revenues and profit streams and they need to get people viewing their stuff, right? So, they know how to hijack notifications to get us to click and look. And from a nutrition standpoint, it's like our food, our availability of food and being able to get things has far surpassed what our ancestors could get. So we're able to eat in a way that our body is not caught up to. And and so I think slowing down and pulling back and retracting helps us get back in line with who we actually are from a physiological standpoint.
2: That's so interesting. And I, in some, you know, really optimistic way, hope that with that evolution comes the evolution of connection as well. And that, Maybe we'll all start challenging these you know, channels and we'll all start mm. working towards this environment that would bring us back to more interaction. I mean, I at least, you know, nowadays, if I have to interview someone or if I have a phone call, I make sure that I don't look them up beforehand so that I'm not trying mm. to engage in any of my personal, again, preconceived notions. And wow. I mm. just hope that even though there has been research huh. that proves that, In life, people who are similar to each other, you know, are drawn to each other. There's a theory of birds of a feather truly do flock together. And I hope Mm -hmm. that with this continued evolution in this hyper technological world we live in, that maybe in, in the future, we'll actually start wanting to revert back. Both of you have really energized me to have faith that we can really bring people back together. And I'm excited to continue on that journey.
1: Thank you for joining us thank you for um your awesome endeavor table talk um, thank you for partnering
0: and, with us and partnering
1: and, like i'm really excited for the things we have coming
0: like thank you for all, like doing we, all of us doing exactly to us what you just said we do to you you give us energy to know yeah. that there is more of us out there that Want to endeavor down this road of of building connection and in better open dialogue amongst amongst each other.
2: Thank you. So, I was so happy to be here. You guys brought so many great things to the table.
1: to the, ta- bring, it to the <laughs> bring it to the table. Bring it to so, the table. As we leave, as we as we look to clear the table, what would you like to leave our listeners with, uh, or to to think about, or uh, any advice?
2: I think. I would encourage people to remember that even crossing the threshold in the smallest way to meet someone new in whatever environment they find themselves in, that that small connection just points to so much more than what we originally think of it as. And I just encourage people to reach out to the person next to them at a restaurant at a coffee shop in an elevator in the most conventional or unconventional of spaces and start building these ecosystems together and just start by introducing yourselves to someone next to you and hopefully finding out that you have so much more in common with that person than you may have previously thought and hopefully that will lead you to more connections in the future that will challenge your own notions but also help build You know, your ideal network of people who reflect different perspectives than yourself to continue to grow.